It's Tuesday, October 22nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. For parents with kids in school, you might already be aware that many middle and high schools offer online gradebooks where the status of quizzes, homework, and overall grades can be monitored. And it's quickly becoming the latest parental obsession. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how watching the steady stream of tests and homework scores is too tempting for some. Next, Democrats are increasingly getting worried about the amount of money that President Trump and the RNC have raised so far and what it could mean for the general election. This year, they have raised about $300 million for his re-election effort, more than any sitting president in history at this point in the campaign. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico, joins us for money in the campaign and how it's used. Finally, U.S. tourism has had a good run for about a decade, and small historic cities are starting to feel the pain of this prolonged boom, and the locals are directing some of their anger at hotel developers. Local city leaders are even passing moratoriums on new hotel construction. Mike Sasso, economics reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for more on these cities overrun by tourists. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In some cases, the schools can set it up so that parents not only have access to the portal where they can go at their own leisure and check, but they can receive text notifications or email alerts when a new grade has been added. So that just kind of ups the ante there in terms of the parental anxiety, like, oh my gosh, a new grade has been added. Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. We're going to be talking about the latest obsession for parents. And I I have to say this every single time. I love all your columns, this intersection of parenting and technology, because parents have to advance just as fast with all the kids and everything on this. But this new one has to do with school and checking their kids' grades online. I'm so glad that this wasn't around when I was a kid. I was a pretty good student, but whenever I had a bad quiz score or a test score or something, I didn't really have to be as forthcoming with my parents as you do now. Parents can check the scores in a lot of instances, assignments, quiz scores, test scores, major midterms, things like that. And parents are obsessing over checking them constantly. Tell us a little bit about this. So a lot of school districts across the country are actually requiring teachers to input kids' grades on every assignment and test into an online gradebook that the parents and the students can both access. It's not exactly real-time. You know, it depends on when the teacher has the ability to finish grading and inputting all the assignments. But the idea is that parents can see these grades, and if there's a problem, they can nip it in the bud early on. But what it's doing is actually, in many cases, causing a lot of anxiety where there may not necessarily need to be any. I spoke to some parents who say they feel compelled because it's right there at their fingertips to check this information constantly. And sometimes if a teacher hasn't yet put in a test score or graded an assignment, it can look like the child is failing the class. And so a parent might might confront their student and say, oh, my gosh, it looks like you're failing high school chemistry. What's going on? And there's a reasonable explanation for why it may look that way. How do teachers feel about this whole thing? Teachers find it a mixed blessing because on the one hand, it can reduce the amount of communication they have to do with parents directly because the parents have that information so readily available that they don't always have to email parents or pick up the phone if there's a problem because a lot of the parents are just on it already. But on the flip side, I talked to one teacher who said, you know, it really takes kind of the bigger picture out of the whole process that parents and students alike can become so focused on the grades 
that they really lose sight of the bigger picture here. They start looking at it as grades to get that letter grade and the importance of that versus, you know, you might bomb a test here and there, you might do better or worse on a particular assignment. But in the end, it's all about developing the skills that you need to learn a particular subject. Talk to us a little bit about some of these companies. I know you mentioned Jupiter Education Inc. I think there was another one called PowerSchool. These are some of the companies that are putting out these online grade books. They also allow parents to do other things like track their kids' attendance, see if their kid is tardy, look for assignments and see if they are missing assignments. And those are all helpful things that parents can say, hey, you've got a math project or science project coming up and kind of provide their kids with some reminders. But they both provide the online grades. In some cases, the schools can set it up so that parents not only have access to the portal where they can go at their own leisure and check, but they can receive text notifications or email alerts when a new grade has been added. So that just kind of ups the ante there in terms of the parental anxiety, like, <laughs> oh my gosh, a new grade has been added. Of course, you're, right. you know, if you're like me, you're not going to wait and look at it later. You're going to look at it right away, especially if you have concern about your student having a bad test score on something. But there are quite a few companies out there that are making these apps and websites for parents. And some of the numbers behind this are pretty amazing. I think Jupiter individually, they have a grade book that's used to track the grades of 4 million students worldwide. That's a lot. But they also said that 50% of families with access to this never log on. And this just seems like it's the case, you know, in general, if we had this or not, there are those parents who are a little lax on nailing their kids down to schoolwork. And then there's those parents that go into overdrive. Some of these people that would log on every day, they said 14% log on at least once a day. So these are the parents that are looking for these daily updates, minute by minute updates, whenever you get some type of notification. There's definitely a subset of the very vigilant parents who do log on and they go all in. I was surprised to hear that half of the families that do have access don't, though, take advantage of that for good or for bad. And and that's the question of where part of the intent of these apps is to get more parents involved in their kids' schoolwork and to get them more engaged with the teachers and know what's going on in the classroom and with their kids' homework and everything. And apparently that's not happening. And I talked to someone at Jupiter who said there will always be those parents who are uber vigilant and they will be that way whether they have access to their kids' grades or not. And then there will always be those parents who aren't paying attention and having an app at their fingertips is not going to make them pay attention. It just seems like this puts a lot more pressure on the students in speaking to parents and teachers. How do they feel about that? A lot of the teachers I spoke to said that that can create anxiety in the students because they themselves, the students themselves, have access and are often checking it maybe as frequently, if not more frequently than their parents because they're worried about their grades. They might also want to be getting ahead of their parents and anticipating what the conversation is going to be like when they get home. Yeah. (laughs) And, And they know that they can't just hide it or they can't wait until they've, you know, made up an assignment or perform better on the next test to have that conversation with their parents because their parents have that data now. And so they have to be ready to be held accountable for it in the case of those parents who are being super vigilant with the app. So yeah, I think it puts a lot of pressure on kids and, you know, I can see why parents would feel compelled to take a look at this. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Remember that Trump was vastly outspent in the last election and still won. But I do think the disparity in the fundraising right now is significant. It certainly has some Democrats alarmed, and it's huge. He's swamping the Democrats and the DNC. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent for Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. 
Hey, good to be here. We're going to be talking about money in the election. Right now, the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee have raised more than $300 million this year for the reelection effort. That's nearly twice as much cash on hand than former President Obama and the DNC had at this same time in his reelection run. We know every year the money amounts in election just kind of grows exponentially. Tell us a little bit about how the Trump campaign is doing against the Democrats and just how important money is altogether in these elections. It's an interesting point you raise about money growing every year. And so maybe it is worth noting that we could almost say every cycle, a historic amount raised by a president. So you don't want to be too breathless about this. And also remember that Trump was vastly outspent in the last election and still won. But I do think the disparity in the fundraising right now is significant. It certainly has some Democrats alarmed and it's huge. He's swamping the Democrats and the DNC. Where are they primarily making their money off of? I mean, I know that they're running ads all over the place and getting huge returns in that. And they're also making ads based off of every single little scandal or uh, thing that pops up in the media. You know, the impeachment inquiry, they'll tailor ads to that and bring in a bunch of money that way. That's right. And I think what they're mostly doing now, what they've mostly spent their money on is digital. So it's social media. And what it mostly has been has been to build its list. So Trump is using social media and spending money to build a broader base of supporters, which is very similar to what you see, or especially earlier in the primary, you saw Democratic candidates doing where they were spending a lot of money to bring in small donors to add to their list because these donors are very, very valuable going forward. They're not one-time donors. They're people who you can engage with month after month after month and expect more contributions. And and ultimately, somebody who's donating, who's giving you $5, is more likely to remember to turn out and vote for you than somebody who isn't. So it's a list-building exercise at this point. I think next year is when you start to see that money be spent on persuasion. You mentioned that last election cycle, the president was outspent by Democrats, but it was the way that he was using that money, the way he was targeting ads. They went very heavy on digital platforms like Facebook in particular. And it was really all about money and effectiveness. And they would make so many different ads. They'd tailor an ad to target about 2.5 million people, let's say. And Hillary Clinton would make an ad to target about 8 million people. So these ads were just hyper-focused. And oftentimes they'd play on a lot of these stories in the news, immigration and invasions and things like that. So the ad targeting was a lot different. The messaging was different. The other thing to keep in mind is that one reason you can win with less money in a presidential race, even if, let's say, his advertising had not been particularly effective, one reason somebody with less money can win is because name ID is is basically universal in a presidential campaign. So a disparity in spending would be much more alarming to the party with less money if it was in a Senate race, say, or definitely a congressional race, a county soups race. That's where your dollars are spent on mailers that tell voters who you are. In a presidential race, the money's important, obviously, but earned media counts for so much in a race where everybody knows who you are. So people are already talking about the candidates, know who they are before any of those millions are spent. The president has that benefit of basically running his general election campaign starting now, And on the Democratic side, the last debate had 12 people there. I know there's more people in the race, but that last debate still had 12 people there. They haven't come around to a nominee yet, so they still really can't get that central messaging going there. I know Democrats are a little scared about the juggernaut that is 
the Trump campaign with regards to their money and their ad spending. I know a lot of them feel like everything's going to turn around once they finally get that nominee, though. That may be. And I think they're right. There are some donors sitting on the sidelines. They see 12 people on stage. They don't have a huge motivation to give to that infighting, I guess, and and probably will donate once there's a nominee to coalesce around. There's a flip side of this, though, too, which is that the state of that nominee is undetermined right now. So I don't know if you're going to come through in March or April or whenever it is with a Democratic nominee who is immediately ready to carry that message against Trump forward, or if you'll come out with a nominee who's been bloodied by an increasingly bitter primary campaign. We're just starting to pick up now, right, where the primary is, and it's hard to know what that nominee will have to deal with once he or she is selected. What happens in that case if there is a particularly nasty primary later on in the next few months? Do you have to spend a lot of money basically rebuilding their persona again? Well, I think there's that and defending against attacks, but it's just a calendar question. So if the nominee is pretty well settled after Super Tuesday, that gives you a longer time to start raising money as the nominee. If the nominee isn't settled until convention time, well, all those Democratic dollars and resources raised in the meantime are all going to be going towards that fight, right? And instead of being directed towards Trump. David Siders, national political correspondent for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Smaller places like Charleston, South Carolina, they're all seeing robust hotel growth. They're starting to see some problems with all kinds of things. Hoteliers are starting to, they say, push out other land uses. So some residential places are being torn down for hotels. Joining us now is Mike Sasso, economy reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Happy to be here. U.S. tourism has had a good run for about a decade The industry has been booming. I think we've had 116 consecutive months of growth. But what's happening now is that a lot of people are overcrowding a lot of small and mid-sized cities. And while they do enjoy the tourism boom, they're running into a lot of problems and they're really taking aim at hotels. So tell us a little bit about this whole thing. Tourism's been in a pretty good spot for quite a while. It mirrors the economy overall. The strongest part of tourism is actually domestic leisure. So think of Americans traveling around America for fun rather than business. Actually, there's been a little bit of a slowness lately in international to inbound tourism into the U.S., but things are going pretty gangbusters with regards to Americans traveling around America, and developers have taken notice. There's a pretty strong growth of hotels, really in a lot of growing cities. Nashville has been going gangbusters as well. They're up something like 33% in the last 10 years, and I think they have more in the pipeline But where you're starting to see some pushback is in some of the smaller cities, places like Nashville, Tennessee tend to have bigger economies, bigger plots of land, just more capability to handle all these hotels. Smaller places, which are all seeing robust hotel growth, are starting to see some problems with all kinds of things. Hoteliers are starting to, they say, push out other land uses. So office buildings are being raised in favor of hotels nowadays. Also, some residential 
places are being torn down for hotels. And this is causing a number of of problems, uh, amongst other things, just loss of offices for people to work. It's creating additional traffic. And also, some people are saying it's exacerbating the housing shortage that America has. One of the problems is hoteliers, by their own admission, do not tend to pay high wages. It's a relatively low-paying occupation, particularly for the people fixing and cleaning up the rooms and whatever. And you bring in all these new hotels and with relatively low-paid people, where are these people going to live? Most of the apartments that are being constructed are market rate. They often have around Atlanta, where I am, the typical rent for a new apartment is upwards of fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars $1,500. That's not unusual around the country. You know, simply a person cleaning rooms in a hotel can't afford that. And so some of these communities are pushing back a little bit by actually either banning hotels outright for a period of time, you know, sometimes up to a year, but also requiring hotels to pay into affordable housing funds. Paying into these affordable housing funds can cost the hoteliers and the developers quite a bit of money, anywhere from 200000 to 600000 per project. So that's a hurdle that the hoteliers need to consider if they even want to continue building there. Interestingly, as I did the research, there's something called a linkage fee, and a linkage fee is jargon for linking something like the affordable housing problem with some other phenomenon like hotel growth. Up until recently, housing developers were getting hit with these linkage fees under the theory that you, know, you can't build all these high-end apartments or these high-end condos or housing developments, and you're leaving behind the lower income people. And so they were hit with these kinds of demands that they pay into affordable housing funds. Now, some of these communities are starting to turn toward hotels and say, you uh, hoteliers are a cause of our problems and we want you specifically to pay into these funds, which is a little bit of a turn of events. And not surprisingly, some developers of hotels are upset. They feel like they're being singled out. There's something known as the cultural irritation index. So how the level of frustration that locals feel toward tourism, how are these cities feeling on this? Because I would think that a good tourism economy is still a positive. It's a very sensitive thing for these communities. The Fella city manager in little Moab, Utah, all 5,000 people, was very concerned about being in my article because I thought he didn't want to be seen as bemoaning tourism. He literally said to me, tourism's all we've got. We have no manufacturing. We have not much retail or other industry, but they still have to strike a balance. So they're in a tough spot. Charleston's in a little bit of a tough spot. They want at the same time control tourism and keep life acceptable and nice for the locals without keeping tourists away. So it's a delicate balance. And you mentioned that cultural irritation index is a fun thing I ventured upon. It turns out in academia, they measure how irritated locals are getting on a scale. It's like four different levels from euphoria, which is uh, kind of a new <laughs> community. You're euphoric. Oh, they got these tourists coming. Oh my gosh, this is a great thing. To all the way on the other end, I think was the word antipathy or antagonism, one or the other. I've been to Venice or Barcelona recently, but I understand that they are towards the more irritated part of that continuum. Mike Sasso, economy reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure thing. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.